Today our guest is Ganesh, a serial entrepreneur. Ganesh started his career in software engineer. After working for seven years in the company, he did MBA study focusing on business in Asia. During his MBA, he met a few classmates who shared similar vision as he did. That's how Spark Toys, his first business, was born. After gaining some valuable lessons from his first startup, he then started two other companies. One is in convenience food, and the other one is in farming. Even though he started three different companies in three different industries, but he will share with us what is the secret in identifying the right business opportunities. Thanks, Yasi, for having me. So, could you tell us how you changed from being a software engineer to becoming a serial entrepreneur? So, I think it's a it's not a premeditated.、Uh, you know, it's not like I wanted to become a entrepreneur. Or I had an idea of becoming an entrepreneur. I think like ten years back, if someone had asked me what what do you envision yourself being at the age of like thirty five, forty, I would have been mostly an engineer. Like I preferred being an engineer. I liked、uh, you know coding day in day out. So it was it was not like I wanted to become an entrepreneur. But I think、uh, as I progressed in my career, I started to feel a bit.、Uh, Uh, lost in the sense,、um, every day I was doing the same kind of work. Work was not getting more interesting. There was a glass ceiling. I did feel that sometimes I was better suited to make the decisions compared to the management folks who were making the decisions, and、uh, that's because I was an engineer and they were the management guys. And I realized maybe I should just、uh, check out what is management. And、uh, the reason I did my MBA was purely because I was bored, and I didn't want to do the work, and I wanted to take a break, and I didn't want to go traveling or something. So I was like, okay, let me do an MBA, which has plenty of travel because my MBA was in China, in Korea, and in Singapore. So there was a bit of travel, there was a bit of a break from work. But during my MBA, I met a few interesting people. We talked a lot of ideas.、Uh, like every day after our school, we would sit around. Discuss about you know what some company should have done or not done, and、uh, I started meeting these interesting chaps who I wanted to work with. And it was impossible for me to figure out if I went after an MBA and joined another company, and then trying to get these people to also join that company and working with them、um, was not a happening thing. So the idea was, hey, let's create our own company and work with each other, right? So it's like I want to work with you guys. The easiest way to work with you guys is if we have our own business, so we are not dependent on anybody else to, you know, give us a job and be in the same location or something. When you said that after class you would gather together and brainstorm and then talk about business ideas, is there something someone initiated that, or is just a natural common interest from you guys and you decided to do it? Yeah, there was never like we never named it a business、uh, brainstorming session or something. It would always be like we would hang out. Like there was plenty to talk. Like after there were, there are few of us who had a different, you know,、uh, interest in like, hey, you know, what is that? Like I think all of us were very curious about what is that one thing that made some company different. So it is not like a blanket statement like. Oh, Uber is、um, you know doing taxis, but they don't own the taxis, and therefore they are a you know big startup. But actually, going down deeper, like you know peeling the onion deeper and deeper and deeper, and understanding what is that one thing that they did different, and、uh, that takes a lot of you know your MBA work. It takes a lot of understanding all sorts of different things and figuring out what is that one thing that didn't exist before that they did,、uh, which made them successful. Is that how your first company, the Spark Toy? Was born. Yes. So if you, if it's it's a very silly idea. The idea was none of us have done business,、um, and、uh, yes, we had. You know, we thought of ourselves as consultants and you know people who could help other people and stuff. But we had never done a business ourselves. We've never run a business ourselves. So the thing was, let's run it, but let's run a business in which we have very low downside. But we also make money from day one, so we didn't want to start a business of、uh, like you know a payment service or a fintech company that will go green in like five years. 
in order to start something in month one i make profit simple business it's not a startup so we figured what kind of thing can we get into that is very quick to start uh, requires very little investment and uh, if it succeeds or fails it's it's okay to shut it off right and uh, for us the spark dot toys we we dug very deep into it on the surface spark dot toys is just but a toy rental company but below the surface what we were attacking was there's this trend of toys coming in which were the stem toys and the problem with the stem toys is the life of the toys is greater than the life of the interest that a kid has in the toys so for instance when you buy a tennis racket most likely the tennis racket breaks or you know the strings get loose uh before you lose interest in tennis similarly when you get a cricket bat or something you you continue playing the game till your cricket bat breaks then you get your next cricket bat right so the the interest in the sport is greater than the utility of the items that are made for the purpose of the sport but in stem toys unfortunately you are interest because it's mostly problem solving and you once solve it you get it like if you have to figure out how to get this bead from here to here using some random elements and you have to solve some random problems to do it once you've done with that science experiment it is done it is not something that you will keep playing every day because you've done it how to make your first compass how to do something else um how to figure out which side of the magnet is you know attracting yeah. to what yeah so then you're not going to keep doing it forever but these things cost far higher than a tennis ball or a tennis bat or something yeah you know because when you're trying to get a stem kit because science kit and it's got a lot of moving parts and you know gears and things and stuff so it's generally like 3 or 4x expensive but the utility of it for your kids is only for a short term and that meant that you keep buying more of it and it keeps cluttering your home because there is no resale value or you don't end up buying it at all thereby denying your kid any uh, you know of access to these stem toys because you are like oh you'll get it and you'll play it for like 15 days so why should i spend 80 dollars on it right so the idea was hey why not just use you know toy rental to kind of help both the toy manufacturers right now are not selling because parents are not buying because it's expensive and it's got short utility and the parents are not buying because if they buy it then it just ends up cluttering the house so if you could figure out a toy rental model that supports both then it kind of helps second is we figured that lot of kids when they have access to a lot of toys they don't push themselves to learn especially when toys like stem toys which require you to uh, you know challenge yourself and learn something new and the point is when you have a lot of toys you kind of lose interest when you hit a roadblock and you move on to the next toy and uh, in some cases in some studies it's even linked that the reason for adhd to move up so much these days is because um, you know kids don't focus on anything they get access to a lot of things they get access to a lot of toys and during my childhood we would have like one or two games and we would play it again and again and again if we keep failing at a level we would keep playing it forever to cross that level so there is this you know uh, so 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 the thing is removing a lot of access to the toys and giving the kids a curated 5 to 6 toys per month kind of made them challenge themselves when they could when they stopped somewhere so that also kind of helped the child's growth uh, so overall it kind of worked out uh, quite well we uh, uh, managed to scale up the company we got our initial we won some tech startup uh, challenges but one of the reasons why we won because we could explain the granular difference of what we were bringing instead of just saying that yeah it's toy rental it's toy sharing and therefore we're making money but why it was working underneath and what did you learn from this startup challenge do you think it has brought a lot of value to your business or how did you see your business transformed after the startup challenge Oh yes so that helped us speed track things because when we participated in the startup challenge that is the day we launched actually so most companies which came to the startup challenge uh, already had businesses working for a year but we had launched it on the day of the startup challenge and had it not been for the startup challenge maybe we wouldn't have launched it we would just keep talking about it right 
So we launched it. We got our first customer, first two customers registered while I was giving the talk at Slingshot. And uh, that was like pretty cool. Like we launched it and then we started getting our first customers uh, registering uh, to us. And uh, then after we won it, we were on uh, uh, Channel News Asia. And every time our episode went up on Channel News Asia, we ended up getting like 500, 600 subscribers. And um, so we didn't have to do much of marketing. Like one of the things that I didn't learn, which I think I should have learned during my first startup was marketing. I think marketing is a piece that I'd never learned purely because we just got lucky. We got a Channel News Asia season five of startup. We got a lot of customers every time there was a rerun of those episodes. And uh, once we got into Channel News Asia, we got contacted by the Southwest CDC. It's a government uh, uh, community development center, which had a baby bliss card program. And the baby bliss card program was, it was offering discounts to parents who had kids below the age of five, which was our target segment. And uh, so they reached out to us and said, hey, we want to put your logo uh, on our baby bliss card so that 10,000 parents in our region will get access to your service. And we were like, okay, go ahead. Like we had to do nothing about it. That's how we got all our customers. Like everything started falling into place. We didn't have to do much. We got newspaper articles written. Um, uh, we like by themselves, like people found out about us and then they wrote about us. We didn't have to go and ask people to do it for us. Uh, we didn't do ads. We didn't do, uh, yeah, we, we tried out Facebook ads once, but we didn't see value in it. Uh, and then we stopped marketing. We just ran with word of mouth. Where did you get the fund to start with? We didn't need a lot of fund. Uh, simply because uh, the business was such that what we were offering the the what we were offering our customers was a $150 worth box for $50, right? So if a customer joins in, then they pay us $50 and we give them a $150 box. $150 was how much it was worth in retail. We got it to about $80 because we were buying it in wholesale. And uh, then the second thing is, apart from paying the $50, the customer pays $100. So the inflow from the customer, so every new subscriber who came in paid us upfront $150. And to support that subscriber, we have to get one box into the system. And that box cost us $76 to $80. So literally we were green. Like we needed the money to start only to get the warehouse, to get our, you know, basic things done, like, you know, our shelves and our stocking and our picking zone, our cleaning machines and those things. So all that came to roughly about $25,000. Like all in, we had to put in about $25,000. Uh, but other than that, every new customer came in, they paid for themselves. Mm. So that okay. $25,000, three of us, it was, not, it was not a huge amount to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Also, we didn't put any of our savings into it. Uh, both Pratyush and I used to trade in crypto. And uh, at that time in 2017, crypto was at its peak. So we had quite a sizable, you know, saving. One of the things that we decided is uh, because it was an experiment, we didn't want to put any of our hard-earned money into it. We wanted to just, it was an experiment. It's like, let's do this experiment. If it succeeds, we learn something. If it fails, okay, we lose $25,000. And uh, so we just... uh, put our crypto winnings. Basically, Pratyush and I used to trade a lot in crypto. 2017 was a high time for crypto. Like you invested in any coin, you made like 3x, 5x on it. So we invested some money in crypto and uh, within a few days, uh, it shot up and then we exited from our positions and that is the money we pumped in. So it was like fail safe, like we screw up. Okay, it's that money that we made in that two weeks that we lost. So it was worth it. It was just an experiment. So you mentioned that you uh, invest in cryptos, the ones that you believe in at that time, and then you made a lot of profit and you use this profit for uh, Spark Toys. Not just Spark Toys. We invested in, like, uh, any... So we had this uh, uh, fund for experimenting. So Turntree.in was our uh, mine and Pratyush's company. It's like a paper company. I mean, but we did register it. 
So turntree.in was like, let's do any of our wacky ideas. So, so we spent our whole MBA talking about ideas. Hey, this company should have done this. This company should have done that. Oh, maybe they, if they had tweaked their idea, it would have worked and stuff like that. And we decided that we should have a fund wherein we should keep putting in money and uh, we should keep investing that money in crypto or in funds or in stocks or anything. But basically, we should keep growing that money purely to experiment with things. Like if tomorrow we have an idea, it should never be like, oh, what do we do for capital? Where do we go for capital? It should be like, okay, let's do a scaled down version of it. How much do we need? Okay, 30,000. Let's put in 30,000 and run the experiment and see if it doesn't work out, kill it, move on. Right? So, so Turntree.in was our experiment fund. And Spark.toys was one of the projects which came out of Turntree.in. I see. And I know that later you also sold the Spark Toys, right? Yes, we sold Spark Toys. And why to did you rent. decide to do so? I think the goal was never to run Spark.toys. I, I think, bo- I think um, what drives me is uh, the bigger problems uh, in the world. The, and I see there are six major problems. Uh, the six major problems that I think are really valuable to solve are uh, related to population. So if you think of it, it's about transportation. How do you, because if, if there are going to be 9 billion more, there are going to be 9 billion people by 2050, how are we going to transport all these people? Can cars be the solution? And uh, there are people like Elon Musk who are thinking about like boring company which will dig down uh, under the city. Uh, but how many cities can afford that? How many cities can, you know, build an underground level two city? Not many. So there has to be other ways of solving, uh, you know, transportation uh, problem when you have 9 billion people. And then there is energy uh, needs. Like, what are we going to do? Coal is going to run out if you have to support more people and more people need more energy. And, uh, you know, then it, it needs to be somehow needs to be solved. And then there is uh, food. There is... Uh, everything related to food, not just the agriculture, the producing of the food, but also what kind of food do you eat? How synthetic is it? Or, you know, is it good for your health? It's not good for your health. And uh, the whole whole life cycle of the food, right? From production to wastage. Uh, and then after that, you have education. Uh, I believe education is like one of the huge things that will undergo a lot of change now because uh, back during my time, education was all about memory. There was no, there was very little internet. So it mattered how much you remembered because if you don't remember something, then you don't know where to go and find it because you can't go to the library. If you don't know the term name, then you can't even figure it out. But now when you have the internet, your memory doesn't really mean much. You could, like, it doesn't matter if you know when the war started. It doesn't matter if you know the formula for binomial equation or you don't know the formula for binomial equation. You can just Google it up. So I think education needs to change from testing memory to testing data interpretation or something like that. And I believe companies dealing with that or schools and colleges dealing with that, that's a huge uh, market. And then there is housing, which is, I again think, uh, the current way of building houses is not sustainable. And the last one is pollution. Out of these six, I think three of them is like, something that only a government can take, do something about, like pollution, transportation, and uh, energy. The rest of the three related to food, education, and uh, housing. I think uh, this is something that, uh, you know, individuals can take part in. And uh, so my goal has always been towards figuring out how I can help in these three problems. So I'm taking like baby steps. The Spark.toys was merely a way to see whether... I would enjoy running a company or whether I could run a company or not. And now I have the confidence that yes, given any company, however bad the business proposition, I think I can make the decisions to make it profitable. So with that confidence, that is why I stepped into my more focused area, which is food right now. So I want to get into farming and, you know, processing of food. But then after Spark Toy, how did you come up with this idea of this convenience food, which is your second company called Perry O, right? Yes. 
after spark dot toys i i didn't i didn't want to live in india i kind of uh, didn't think i would enjoy living in india uh, purely because uh, most of my time i would have to figure out about uh, mundane things that the government should be taking care of and so i figured i would rather go to korea and stay because i had studied in korea getting a visa over there was not a problem and when i was staying in korea i kind of uh, was exposed to a lot of cool types of uh, you know handling food like korea is big on convenience food like everyone lives in like like students and uh, you know initial workers and all of them live in a place called goshiwon it's like a cramped room with nothing but a bed and a table for you to study uh and uh, their life runs on like instant food like everything is instant but by instant it didn't mean that it's deep fried or it is like bad for health they had figured out how to make instant food for everything from your kimchi to your you know proper food proper dinner everything they figured a way to make it easy and that's where i figured uh, a lot of indian food takes a lot of time to prepare and uh, also it takes a lot of ingredients and therefore most people can't make them then i i figured yeah if i could apply some of this technology that korea and japan have to indian food then it kind of opens up a huge market so how did you actually started this company then where did you learn the technology to freeze the food and then source your suppliers oh, so i i just looked up for freeze drying i found uh, there's harvest right which is an american company and at that time my brother was in us harvest right makes these home based a uh, mini sized freeze dryer so i asked my brother to order one they don't ship outside us so my brother ordered one it was delivered to him and then he shipped it all the way from there to singapore and then me and my dad uh, got into testing mode we made a lot of different recipes tested it out and then gave it off to our friends and family to check what their reactions were and uh, even acquaintances who didn't have to be nice to us pretty much all of them gave us positive review and they wanted more of it they were like okay can you get more of it and then i even took some of that to korea gave it off to my friends in korea saw their reactions uh, most of them wanted it uh, wanted more of it and then we figured okay so we have given it to over 500 600 people and none of them have given a bad review and uh, all of them want more of it it's not just bad review most of them wanted to know how to order it reorder it so then we knew we had a market so then it was all about ordering a big machine from china finding the space to put the freeze dryer and uh, you know making production scale that is how we started interesting so you accidentally found out about this idea you tested with your friends and you get good feedback and then you started ordering like the actual machines and then running the business yeah so like pretty much uh, the way everything with turntree that works is figure out and if you, if you figure out something interesting you have the experimentation money uh it is just the, the experimentation money just needs to be signed by me and uh, pratish so if i want to do an experiment i just have to tell pratish hey pratish i want this much fund out of this this is what i want to experiment in, on do you also want to do the experiment or do you just want me to do it or you don't want to be a part of it that is how so we would just experiment if something fails and we would figure out a scaled down version of experimenting so we wouldn't go and order a 300 ton freeze dryer and then experiment we would figure out how can we do it in the cheapest possible way to figure out whether this will work or not and we found a 4000 3000 uh, freeze dryer which can make like 2 kgs at a time and uh, yeah so it's 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 like something that you use for your home and uh, so that's what we ordered so the whole hit for the experiment was about like 3000 dollars for the for the freeze dryer 800 dollars for transporting it and then some of the electricity costs and you know oil for the vacuum pump and the ingredients and all that put together and probably like 200 300 so the total experiment is about like 4000 5000 okay. but we sure shot knew we had like 500 600 people who were willing to buy from us mm-hmm. and that was good enough because that 
even if if it doesn't scale more than for those 500 people i still thought that was good enough to start the business with okay and then where is perio now right now we make about uh, 80000 packets a day uh, we sell 80000 packets a day uh, we still are in soups the idea was we'll get into soups first because they had a wider appeal and then we would get into indian curries but right now because of covid india has been shut down for about four months now so so we've still not launched the curries uh, freeze dried indian curries Uh, but we do have the soups and how did you take it from among few hundred friends that they would want to buy it to 80000 package sold now like what is the journey in between mostly because we uh, i didn't want to do direct to consumer because direct to consumer is always tough the idea was to get into retail or uh, get into uh, you know e-commerce some e-commerce website and uh, luckily for me i had uh, contacts in uh, kupang where i used to be a consultant for quite a bit and therefore i got it launched on kupang and then uh, i did uh, something called as vendor funding vendor funding is where you give kupang money uh, to for, to promote your product so the idea was to teach people something like this is available uh initially so to get exposure and then um, you cut back on the exposure so that's how we started so we started with uh, you know getting coupon and once we got coupon then we could and and coupon started reordering from us like they would place purchase orders to us then because we had those purchase orders and we could show that yes we are a growing brand and which is good for you so then we could get into tiki.vn which is a vietnam company and then uh, e-commerce and then we got to some of the us e-com websites like niche websites so not not big yet and uh, to get into amazon of course either we have to start off as the dealers ourselves or something which is far more complicated but at some point we'll get into that but yeah the idea is not to sell in india because i think they are far expensive for an indian consumer like 3 dollars is like 180 rupees you can get a whole meal uh for that but there is a huge market for these in outside india and you mentioned that due to covid-19 it has been business has been stopped for a while no no the production is going on but the testing and stuff is like stopped right now because every time you create a new food product you have to uh you know do the nutrient testing and the you know bacteria salmonella and all these testings from the government agencies and stuff all those processes are slowed down like those testing labs are stopped right now so launching something new is going to take a lot of time okay. it's not going to happen anytime soon yeah i understand that's for new products but i have seen many countries that initially during the lockdown all the emergency food was sold out and do you also see that for perio yes so we we uh, right now we don't have the capacity so we have far more orders than our capacity because uh most of these stores uh like uh, we we are also on some physical stores like some of these gyms and uh, you know these restaurants which want to place our products so those people uh, it used to be a very tiny portion of our uh, business uh, like 90 95% used to be e-commerce which was like a consistent you know stream and then there used to be this 5 10% from these local dealers and stuff like some random people would find us on the internet and then would be like hey i want to stock up on your products i want to place like a 1000 unit order or something and then they consistently keep placing their 1000 units but after covid uh, you know from feb most of our us dealers they started placing like 20000 units like from 1000 to 20000 and stuff <laughs> 20 like times that, right? and, yeah 20x and and we don't have the plan or the capacity like our whole scaling plan was like yeah we will get one machine and then we will get a second machine by october then we'll get a third like there is like a linear yeah. uh, you know growth uh, projection and suddenly this whole uh, you know thing changed from daily sales of like 25 30000 to like now 
So 80,000 packets daily. So COVID actually helped your business to take a big leap. Yes, because I think freeze-dried food uh, was not very well known. I mean, so our market, we had to do two things. First, we had to educate people because people would confuse freeze-dried with dehydrated. Freeze-dried and dehydrated are extremely different. Dehydrated, you need to boil. It still takes time to prepare it. Freeze-dried is like super instant and it does not lose nutrients at all. It, it took us time to explain it to people on why it is cooler to or why it's better to have freeze-dried food. But when COVID happened, a lot of people quickly got to know about freeze-dried food. Right. That's, yeah, that's also quite lucky for a business. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, most of my businesses are lucky. I've been very lucky. That's why I say I, I still haven't learned marketing. I've been <laughs> lucky because either a natural phenomenon or, you know, a government uh, agency or, you know, someone somewhere is looking out for my business and then, you know, getting me my customers or getting me my, uh, you know, my business. But it's just pure luck. But do you think that because you know there is a demand, you did your analysis, you did your strategy, you know that there's a demand out there. So when your products is the demand, in the market, I knew was uh, be it a stem of toys or be it a perio the soup. The demand that I knew was I knew that yes, there is there will be a demand for Indian food. Like people like Indian food, but people hate making Indian food. Because it's not easy to make. It's not like five ingredients, you put it and then it's done. Indian food requires you to put the right ingredients, a lot of ingredients, a small amount of a lot of ingredients, which are not common to a lot of dishes. So which means that you buy it today, inventory management of that is very difficult because you buy it and you use a little bit of it today and within a week you have to get rid of it, but the other dishes don't require it. It's not like, okay, I, I put the same potatoes today, tomorrow, day after tomorrow, day after tomorrow, I can clear my inter, uh, inventory, right? So so the point is, it leads to a lot of waste management, right? Like because whatever you buy, you don't end up using. Everything you buy in a kilo and then you end up using like 100 grams of it and then all that is stuck and then for your next recipe, you don't need it. Uh, so that is one. Second is uh, Indian recipes also require you to put the right ingredients at the right time. So it's not like you dump everything together and then it's taken care. It is like if you miss the timing or you put something front and something back, then the dish is like spoiled. And third is most of the ingredients for these, you don't even find it in the other countries. So you could love Indian food. You, you probably know how to cook Indian food, but it's just that you can't get these ingredients in those countries. So it kind of made sense. What if I could make all of this and then put it and freeze dry it, not even like, you know, have it as a liquid pack or heavy pack. If I freeze dried it, then it's super light, which means it's travel friendly. And I also knew that a lot of Indians traveling outside, the first thing is like, oh, there's, I'm, I'm a vegan, I'm a vegetarian. And this country has no, like, even if it is a vegetarian store or a vegan store, they have vegetarian option or a vegan option. They cook it in the same pan of a non-vegetarian yeah. food. Yes. And, and, and for a lot of Indians, that is an absolute no. Like, like my mom, for instance, she's a vegetarian. My dad and I have meat. And, and, and we have separate utensils in the home. It's like we can't use the utensils that my mom used to make the vegan stuff. And uh, so that, that's how picky people are. So I knew there was an amazing market. It was light and it could be preserved for a long time because freeze-drying, generally you can keep it in room temperature uh, for about 10 years. So this is long shelf life, which means the risk is really low. If mm-hmm. I make a ton of inventory, I still have 10 years to clear it. Right. Like at some point I can clear it, right? So it, yeah. it is like very risk-free for me. So food inherently has the problems of low shelf life and therefore higher wastage. I was solving that. The mega problem that I was solving was I was giving it a 10-year shelf life without compromising on the nutrient value for 10 years or the taste for 10 years. And then I was keeping it so light that people could travel with it. And because it was freeze-dried, you could take it in your, uh, you know, uh, carry-on luggage. You don't have to put it in your check-in luggage, which means even if you're a business traveler, which is what I do, like I travel with just a backpack to most of the places because I hate waiting for my luggage and picking it up and stuff. 
So when I want to just travel with a backpack, and if something is in the liquid form or something is like you know pre-cooked food, it's most likely not allowed be a part of your carry-on luggage. But this one, I could easily take it, and it's just like twenty grams. And unlike a you know canned food or something, you can take it because it's less heavy and yeah. it does not have the you know water in it and it's not made of metal or something. You could take it. in your carry on luggage so the idea was it makes sense it solved a lot of problems right. uh, though the solution was quite simple there was a lot of problems for you know people who wanted authentic indian food outside of india without having to go to some indian restaurant which put lot of food coloring or something even besides indian food you also have other types of cuisines in your uh, product line do you uh not now So no, right no. now we okay. just want to focus on uh, Indian food. I mean, it's a huge market. Like yeah. Indian food is a huge market. I mean, India has so much recipes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of like, and India most of the recipes are vegan. Like most of Indians are vegetarian. So the idea is we figured that if we can, you know, containerize it into a packet, twenty uh, gram packet, and then you can have how much ever you want to have, and it's like portioned. and therefore if you have two people then just tear open two packets if you have three people tear open three packets that way you don't it's not just making your life easy to consume but it's also like reducing a lot of food waste uh, yeah. you're not buying a ton of food and then you're not preparing for like 10 people and then you're not ending up throwing away seven people's worth of food uh, or you're not going to get all your vegetables and things to rot which you don't end up using but now it is like perfectly portioned for your consumption So you have this convenience food company right now. How did you move to farming? So I I found I found that in India there are a lot of layer two companies coming up. Like India is right now the best place to be a startup purely because um, the population, right? So you have like one point four billion people. You succeed as a startup. This is the biggest market you can get. I mean, yes, China is a bigger market, uh, but China is also very controlled and. Uh, unless or until you're a chinese company succeeding in china is going to be extremely difficult we've seen that with uber versus didi we've seen that with you know a lot of these companies having to exit uh, china and give up control to a chinese counterpart uh, walmart and things like that right so so the thing is uh, succeeding in china is going to be much difficult succeeding in india is a possibility but if you succeed in india that is almost like succeeding in like 30 40 other countries so you don't have to deal with 30 40 other countries legal uh, systems and policies and you know labor laws and figure out everything you win in one country and you get as much you know range as you win in like 30 40 countries so india is a great place to start up and now the startup ecosystem is building up really fast like a lot of people are uh looking to invest in indian startups and therefore since a lot of money is coming in a lot of people are tackling good problems good problems as in not the there are there are still people who are trying to tackle the communication and the social uh you know complexities like you know companies which are making tiktok and chingari and these kind of apps but i don't think those kind of companies are right now very important uh, they're not they're not solving an important problem related to population uh, they are solving a problem of like you know expressing yourself but um, i feel those companies in india which are right now trying to tackle agriculture they're tackling it on the layer 2 so layer 2 is layer 1 is the production so right now in india the value chain is like farmers produce then farmers sell it to a middleman uh because the farmers don't have access to cold storage uh the middleman takes it at rock bottom price and then the middleman marks it up and then sells it to the mandi and then the mandi which is another middleman those are the people who sell it to all these supermarkets and other people and uh in this whole value chain the farmer gets screwed the most which is why you have a lot of farmer death and all the other people are trying to help out all the other startups that i see in india which are trying to help out are trying to solve the second layer problem which is the distribution so they are like okay the farmer is not making a lot of money because there are two middlemen between them and the final distributor 
And therefore, what if we can connect the final distributor to the farmer or provide the farmer with a direct-to-consumer platform or something like this, right? So all these problems will increase the margin for the farmer. So because you're taking out the two middlemen, so instead of the farmer having to sell for like 20% margin, he can sell it for like a 100% margin. And therefore, he makes more money. But I don't think that is the problem to solve. The problem to solve is the farmer is getting beat not only because there are two middlemen, he's also getting beat because he's using the worst way to produce food. We have not progressed as a country in terms of technology for food. The amount of technology that we have put in into these Facebook and Google and all this, our search is improved by milliseconds. Our, uh, you know, the number of pages crawled is improved and everything. But our way of making food is still the same. You go use normal labor, you put your seeds one time a season. And then after the season is over, you go harvest it. And then you, you know, tie it up and then you sell it. You use that much water, you use fertilizers, you use pesticides. So the idea behind starting 10x farms was every aspect of the farm, not the post-farm, not post-harvest, every aspect of the farm, a farming exercise, we want to improve by 10x. Not 1x, not 2x, like 10x. Like if, if farmers use 1,000 liters of water per kg, we want to use only 100 liters of water per kg. So reduce water consumption by 90%, which is like 10x improvement. And then, uh, you know, increase the productivity by 10x, increase the yield by 10x, uh, decrease the labor cost by 10x. Uh, so things like that, right? Like by automation or by introducing newer technology or by, you know, figuring out uh, how to have a closed controlled environment or uh, how to increase the number of crop cycles per year, things like that. But everything that we can do to increase or decrease everything by a 10x range. And so it's more of an R&D company. We have one farm in Bangalore. The idea behind that farm is we will use all our R&D to test in that farm. And once we are comfortable that we can reach 10x in a lot of aspects, that is when we want to open the technology and the farming practice to a lot of other people. And before starting 10x farm, do you already have experience or knowledge about farming or optimization? In Singapore, we have a hydroponics farm because the Singapore government is... Uh, uh, right now providing a lot of incentives for uh, people to get into farming. We did set up our first farm in Singapore. That is all. That is all my experience with farming has been. And then my brother learned quite a bit. So he went and worked in a farm and uh, he learned quite a bit over there. And then he took up a certification on aquaphonics. So he learned quite a bit. But I think the idea is... Uh, Unlike technology or unlike self-driving cars or like sending a rocket to the moon, farming is very intuitive. It's very logical. I think if you just look at how it is done, like we've seen like farms in which you cut, you harvest over here and then you walk a mile and then you go and uh, process your harvest. Uh, like you package it. But just changing the packaging zone to where you harvest would save a ton of time. In our farm, uh, we use floats. So the idea is, instead of it floating stationarily, you keep adding in, so it's like a U-shape. So you keep uh, seeding the floats with the you know, small nursery plants in one side of the tank. And then it grows all the way. It keeps moving as you keep adding U and U floats. It goes to the end. And then you push it over this side. Then it comes all the way to the end over here where it's harvested. And then the floats are cleaned and then they are re-planted you know, planted, and then they are put back. Just doing this, this whole cycle of it going in a U-shape reduces the walking time, which is the most inefficient time. You know, getting a labor to walk around and pick stuff from different places and then bring it back to one place. Instead of that, I make the water move the boards, the floats, which doesn't cost me anything. And the people stay stationary. So you're, instead of people working, you make the yeah. plants working in your factory. 
Yes, the oh, plants are moving. Yeah, uh-huh. the plants okay. are moving. The people are not moving. Okay. And and that reduces the amount of you know. So I don't need like ten people walking around cluttering this place. You know, dropping things and everything. I've also seen some people use this same technology, but they do it in a straight line. So you seed over here, and then you harvest the other end. But then that is again silly because you have to bring back all your floats to the seeding area again. But on the other hand, I just want to keep both of them together. So you you send it over here, you receive it over here, you chop, you clean, you replant, you push it back. And okay, interesting. Uh, so smaller smaller ideas like these does not require a PhD or does not require a you know a lot of thinking. You just have to see there, sit there, and figure out. what can i do to make my process 1% more efficient and okay. if if i can make it 1% more efficient then every day then mm-hmm. by at some point i should be able to make it at 10 like 90% more efficient and then your lab or we call it a lab in bangalore right now is where you do your r&d and afterwards what's your plan so part of it is i want to get into manufacturing of uh, farming equipments because right now setting up a farm in india uh takes anywhere from 6 to 8 months so i also want to improve that by 10x so if something takes 6 to 8 months i want to be able to set up a farm in 15 days and you should be able to harvest in 30 days so if you decide today you have a piece of land and you say i want to start a farm in 30 days you should be able to harvest right now that's not a possibility you could have all the money on earth but it's not a possibility like you will have to talk to 10 different partners the greenhouse partner is a different guy the person who makes the pond is saying the civil contractor is a different guy all these guys have to talk to each other because if he puts a beam over here and that guy puts a tank over there then it doesn't work out together and then you have to talk to the fisheries you have to talk to the you know aquaponics guys and everybody is checkered but i want to like you know be a farm in a box you order a farm it comes in a shipping container and then it should be so modular that you can fix it yourself it's like ikea and uh, get it started in 15 days so to do that i will need to get into manufacturing and right now the idea of what we are doing in bangalore in our r&d farm is trying out different prototypes like we are building prototypes and then we are testing it out and then seeing how we can make it better understanding the science behind it but and is this will... and it's this from your start of fund or is this something you start with um with your brother uh this is from with my brother so the singapore farm is turn tree project with pratish uh but the indian one is uh, with my brother and then what do you think are the biggest lessons you learned from doing the three startups till now there's there a lot a lot of things that i've learned but uh some of the things that i've learned is uh, figuring out your right partner makes sense uh, that is the biggest thing like a lot of people spend very little time uh, they spend more time thinking about the idea more time thinking about the business more time thinking about the monetization and every aspect but startups fail not because your business model was bad or you know your monetization was bad or something like those things can be corrected like startups always pivot like you start with something make it work if it does not work you change a little bit and then you make it work so the you should be spending more time trying to figure out who is that person that you want to work with and i never anticipated working with my brother simply because uh, you know both of us like he had his own career in us i had my own career in you know whatever i was doing i had my own friend circle and stuff but i didn't realize that uh, i am not a ceo material a ceo material is person who can get stuff done and uh, i was more of a logician like i would come up with a lot of ideas but i wouldn't have the patience or the you know will power to see them through like i don't want to deal with the day to day stuff with it and the moment that i realized that my brother is of the ceo type and i realized that we are compatible that way because he wouldn't focus on his moonshot things but he would focus on delivering things but i would focus on all these moonshot ideas and things on how things could be made better so it kind of like made a good pair in the sense that i i would spend more time thinking coming up with ideas and he would take the time to prioritize which ideas of mine should be shipped out and how they should be shipped out 
so one of the biggest key lessons for me is the startups all my startups i had a long term experience with these guys like when with with aldrin with pratyush i spent like years in the mba school with them and at that point we didn't like i didn't meet them for the purpose of a startup i met them because they were in my class we were not judging each other we were talking our hearts out because they were not applying to a startup that i had or i didn't tell them that i want to talk to you because i want to create a startup with you guys we met in a setting where there was required for there was no requirement for being fake projecting what you were not and that is when you realize okay this is a person i want to work with and then the startup happened the startup was the consequence of good friendship and understanding the person i think it's very lucky that you met those people in your life and also you make something great and then for the audience um where can they find you if they want to learn more about your startups and your projects or even your future startups so one is my twitter which is uh, sagaro s a g a r o so at the <laughs> that's a long name the <laughs> uh, sagaro was, like i used to be into anime and uh, sanasuke sagara was like ruraine kenshin's uh, friend and an impulsive guy so it kind of like resonated when i was like like in my 6th or 7th okay. grade so that's why i got that id and then uh, there is always gap.in gap.in is my website g a p p dot i n dot i n yeah okay yeah i will write uh, if you don't mind i will write your twitter name and your website in description so if people are interested sure. in your project and then they can follow you find you there cool thank you very much for today's session i think there are lots of yes, interesting yes. very interesting stories because even though you said you get lucky with your first and the second but i think there are elements there that are doing it right you understand the business you understand demand you test it you have a startup fund and you know what you are doing so i think at the end of the day luck is one thing but the other elements you need to do it right then the luck comes then you'll be successful yes there is something called as luck surface area so you increase your surface luck surface area by getting educated like for instance like doing education increases your luck surface area it opens you more doors uh but yes but people do get caught up in saying that oh but this guy did not study and he he has luck right but that's an exception so the probability of you getting lucky increases the more you train yourself yeah thank you very much if you like today's episode please subscribe like and share see you in the next one